Our theme for this year as a church, what we've been working on and thinking about has been uh, discipleship. How do we as a church create a culture where every member is a disciple maker? That's, that's the question that's been before us. So we're taking a one-week break from the book of Job to dig in on this theme a little bit better so we can all be thinking about it. In order to do that, I'd like to, you to take your Bibles and open to 1 Peter chapter 2. I told uh, those who make the slides I'm going to be doing verses 2 through 9. I'm actually going to go 2 through 12. So I'm going to add three verses. Um, but that can be found, as you see, on page 1014. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? First Peter 2, verses 2 through 12. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You may be seated as we pray. Father, uh, we, we sense even our own limits. We're here to hear from you, to understand your word. But we need your spirit to even allow us to be able to hear, let alone to be able to allow it to penetrate to our souls, to cut to the deepest place and to shape us. And yet that's what every one of us needs. I feel my own limitation in trying to express that and and call us to it. We all fear our limitations as we limit. But we also believe in you are a big, strong, mighty God 
and that your spirit can and does work in our midst. And so we beseech you now. We ask that you would work in that way. We open our hearts to what you have to say. In Christ's name, amen. One of the worst sermons I ever preached was on this passage. I was a pastor, a young pastor at College Church, a church which has over 2,000 who regularly attend. Now, I was the regu- one of the regular preachers in the evening service. I was part of that rotation. But it was my first chance to preach in the morning service. And it was on this passage. And I flopped. It was also the last time I ever preached in the morning service of that church. But I'm not preaching on this passage because I want a shot at redemption. I'm preaching as a follow-up, as I mentioned, to a series that I did at the beginning of this year on discipleship. Those of you who are with us in January remember the four weeks we spent thinking about discipleship. In that series, I laid out kind of what our church needs to be thinking about with this idea of every member a disciple-maker. How do we get after that as a church? And, and we, we dug into certain passages and thought about what that looks like. In, in those sermons, I described how I want, how, how I, I think the biblical vision for our church would be that we be less like a restaurant and more like a potluck meal. You know how it is at a restaurant. You know, you kind of, okay, which, what am I in the mood for today? Go there. And I expect the hired staff to create the meal, to serve me. I sit there and enjoy it and I pay. And a lot of people think of church that way. Well, what do the hired staff of that church do? Let's show up, enjoy whatever they give. If they do a good job, we'll put some money in off plate, keep coming, keep frequenting that place until they do something that offends us, and then we're off to the next place. But at a potluck meal, it's a totally different idea, right? It's not the hired staff doing it all. It's all of us saying, okay, what, what can I bring to this? What's something that I can contribute? And we all try and contribute. When you come to a potluck meal, there's lots of different kinds of foods there. Some that certain people like, certain that others like. But we all eat well. There's not a critical spirit. And we're all serving. And because we've all served, we're just enjoying our fellowship. It's it's, it's a totally different feel. And when you look at the biblical vision of every member disciple maker, that's what we're talking about. It's not just me who's in charge of looking after each one of you and making sure you're growing in the faith and speaking God's word to you. No, we actually all have to be doing that one to another. Everyone preparing the dish. What, what does God equip me to do? How can I be feeding others? That's really kind of, there's a big idea from those four sermons. That probably was it. But I also laid out a very specific plan for getting after that. It involved core courses, an all-ages discipleship hour, and a strong call for every single person in our church to get after it. And then what I did is I asked for your prayers and your feedback, because I said, this is just where we're thinking of going, and we want your feedback as elders. And we said, we're going to continue to refine the plan based on your prayers and your feedback. Since then, based in part by your feedback, on your feedback, we as elders have refined our thinking about how we're going to be getting after this as a church. And we've become convinced of two things. I think we already were thinking these things, but this has become clearer for us. The first is that our effort must be focused on people, not on programs. We don't want to leave the church, leave everyone in the church thinking that a program is the solution to this. Okay, here's this need. We all need to be disciple makers. What's the solution? A program. What we want instead is a culture of discipleship. And that culture of discipleship only happens when people 
are so transformed by the gospel that they begin, because of the work God's doing in their heart, to prayerfully and lovingly speak truth to others. That's actually a helpful phrase. You might want to jot it down or, uh, or, or try and remember it, that we are lovingly and prayerfully speaking truth to others. That's really what we mean by being a disciple maker. We do that with other believers, and we even do that with unbelievers. That's what it means to be a disciple maker. So that happens when our hearts are transformed by the gospel. We want people who are transformed, and that's what's going to create that culture, not some program. So program, not programs, but people. The other conviction that we've clarified is this. The change that we want to see needs to be more about heart change than about duty. It needs to be about more about heart than duty. We don't want people becoming disciple-makers because they're trying to please the elders and please the leaders of the church or fit some mold that we've created for people. We don't want people doing things because they feel guilty. Oh, the pastor said, this is what I have to do as a Christian, so I've got to do it. We want people doing these things as an overflow of a heart that's been changed by Jesus. So we're talking about people, not programs. We're focused on people, not programs. We're focused on heart, not duty. And if that's our emphasis, it's not going to happen through some slick marketing technique or a catchy slogan or a well-oiled system of discipleship. It's not going to become because, because it's not going to be because we come up with just this perfect banner to put outside that you'll all see or a perfect brochure. We're going to try and be doing some of those things to help you understand, but that's not what's going to make it happen. It will happen as God's word does its work, as the Holy Spirit uses his word and, and does the work in our hearts and captures and transforms our hearts. So my goal today is not to sell you on some program or to guilt you into some sort of Christian duty. My goal today for you is the same as the goal for me, which is I want us all to be reintroduced to Jesus. I want us to be collectively captured afresh by Jesus in all his grandeur. And for that, I turn to 1 Peter 2, the text of the worst sermon I ever preached. Now, typically, I move sequentially through a passage, so I'd start at verse 2 and move along until I got to verse 12, but I think today, for clarity's sake, it's going to be helpful to move thematically through this passage. So I want to look first at the identity of Christ, then the identity of the believer, and then the purpose of the believer. The identity of Christ, the identity of the believer, the purpose of the believer. And for Peter... In this passage, these three themes are all intertwined. And I hope that as I separate them out for clarity, that what Paul has woven together intentionally won't, uh, won't be lost as we move through the passage. But let's look first at the identity of Christ. Now, uh, in verse 4, we're introduced to Christ. And uh, if I was going to tell you about Jesus... And I want to tell you who Jesus was. You might expect me to tell you something like, He's the Savior, or He's the Lord. But Peter does something really 
different. He grabs their attention because when he introduces us to Jesus, he doesn't even call him Jesus. He just says, as you come to him, a living stone. A living stone? Are you just doing that because your name's Peter and Peter means rock, so you want to call Jesus? No. What are you doing with a living stone? But what Peter's doing is something very intentional. He wants to make us think afresh, think in different ways about Jesus and understand who Jesus was. Because this idea of a stone, now he adds the word living, but this idea of a significant stone that he calls a living stone is packed with freight from the Old Testament. So I want to just spend a little bit of time acclimating ourselves to what this phrase, a living stone, means in light of the Old Testament. You see... The first part of the Bible that was written hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus came describes the condition of our world and why it is the way it is. You don't read the Old Testament and not walk away thinking, that was bloody and disgusting. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of things that kind of make you squeamish in it. Because it's describing our world in rebellion against God. When we reject the God who made this world, which Adam did and ushered in all of humanity in that rebellion, it's not a pleasant place. And you see that really clearly. Even the heroes of the Old Testament. King David, you've probably heard of him. Yeah, as an adulterer and a murderer. But through that same story, there's the promise of hope. God is going to do something to undo the curse that man brought into the world. And he gives all sorts of different kinds of hints as to what that's going to look like. But one of the hints he gives, and he gives it on several occasions, is he uses a building metaphor. And he's like, look, I'm just going to destroy the building, and I'm going to start a new building, and there's going to be this cornerstone, or sometimes a capstone, that's going to be the thing that holds this whole new building together. And it's a metaphor that's saying, I'm going to bring in a new and better kingdom that's unlike this. So listen to what Isaiah 28 says in verses 16 and 17. God says, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. You hear it? A new stone's coming. Now righteousness, justice. All the lies and deception of this world, the shelter that we've had, waters and hail, it's gone. New stone. Or early in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. 
But Yahweh of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Again, God's coming doing something new. He's establishing a new sanctuary, a new temple. And part of that is a stone that ultimately is going to destroy much of what's there. Or last in Psalm 118, verse 22. God's speaking of the salvation He's going to bring and He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a lot of passages. Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, Psalm 122. There's actually others we could go to. Psalm 118. There's actually others we could go to. But you get the idea. What is Peter doing by calling him a living stone? He's capping into a theme in the Old Testament. You see, we see even just from these three passages that the stone, the stone is going to be one who's rejected by some, believed on by others, that this stone causes some to stumble while it is salvation for others, and most importantly, this stone brings a new kingdom that's established on the terms of righteousness and justice, and it will sweep away the lies of this world and those who trust in them. I can't help but ask us this morning, Is that something you desire? I've talked to all sorts of different types of people. I'm an extrovert. I talk to people. And through the different places I've lived, I've talked to a lot of different kinds of people. From the most clean-cut, best-behaved, to the most, you know, rebel against the man, all of them have this longing. All of us do. We see that there's something broken in this world and we long for someone to come and just do away with all the lies and set up something that's right and good. And Jesus is saying that longing is met in this stone or God is saying in the Old Testament that longing is meant in a stone. It's like a new building. So when Peter calls Jesus the living stone, he has all of that in mind. And we know that because you might have noticed the three passages I read from are the three passages that he quotes in 1 Peter 2. He is saying Jesus is this living stone. Jesus is the one who comes and makes all of this foul, blighted world right again. He's the one who establishes justice and righteousness. He's that cornerstone who becomes a stumbling block for some, but a source of salvation for others. And he does it ultimately by dealing with sin. We know from the rest of scriptures that on the cross, he dealt with our sin problem. You see, the problem the Bible says isn't a problem that's out there. It's a problem that's in here that we all share. 
And that's what Jesus deals with, the brokenness of our heart, the sinfulness of our heart. He deals with that by breaking its power, by absorbing the wrath of God that's justly poured out on sin. And that breaks the power of sin for all who trust in him. Jesus is the living stone. That's the first thing. Okay, so I'm in verse 4. You come to him, a living stone. It's the most important thing. That's the one thing I want us to grasp most, to re-encounter Jesus. I think Peter's drawing our attention. But the next thing he says, a living stone rejected. Interesting. This glorious living stone is rejected. Peter, Peter doesn't want us to be surprised by that. Like We're thinking, oh, it's great. Everybody longs for this, right? This is what we all want. Here comes Jesus, and all the Christians th- that Peter's writing to are, who are going through real hard times, in part because a lot of people are rejecting their stone. They're going, why are people rejecting Jesus? I don't get it. He brings so, he's does such good. He's transformed my life. Why are people turning away? And he says, look, the living stone, even when it was prophesied, it was prophesied that he'd be rejected. We see it there in verse 4, rejected, but then we see it in the verse quoted. In verse 7, the builders rejected. The stone the builders rejected. Now, not only did our Savior meet the ultimate rejection when the world took her, took her Savior, and nailed Him to a tree, but He continues to be rejected to this day as many stubbornly refuse to yield to Him and embrace the goodness of the plan He's offered. So the great Rescuer has come. The living stone has come. And those who embrace it experience the blessing of life that He gives, but many reject it. Many harden themselves. And those who do stumble upon it The Bible says, even as they were destined to do, it should be no surprise. But in the context of many in the world rejecting him, it doesn't say the living stone rejected. It says the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You see that in verse 4 there? There it is again in verse 6 in a verse that's quoted a cornerstone chosen and precious. The world rejects Him, but how does God view Him? You see, God the Father chose Jesus the Son to be the great stone. He knew He would be the one to rescue the world. His own beloved Son would be the stone that reshapes the world. He is chosen by the Father. He is precious to the Father. And God's good purposes are still standing in Him and through Him despite many opposing and rejecting that saving plan. So the living stone rejected by man, but by God, who ultimately has the power and authority, chosen and precious. Now we shouldn't be surprised that many oppose Christ. I mean, it's hard for me sometimes. I think, like, it's so good. Like, why, why hasn't everyone just embraced Jesus? 
It's so good. He, he is the answer to all the things that people are broken and bent out of shape about. Why don't people embrace him? But then you step back and think. There's a reason our world is the way it is. It's because our hearts are crooked. We aren't naturally bent towards God's righteousness and justice. If we were, our world wouldn't be such a dark and heartbreaking place. And we're also not all that good at self-diagnosis, are we? I mean, if we could fix our problems, we would have fixed it long ago. I think like a child learning to tie his shoes. You can't figure out how to tie your shoes just by doing it on your own over and over again. You need someone to show you. But you see that child sitting there trying to tie his shoes, doing it completely wrong, and you come and you want to help. You want to say, I want to show you how to do it. I, know, I, want, you to, I want to help you. Nope. I'll figure it out myself. Nope, I'll figure it well, You're just going to keep tying it wrong. I'll figure it out myself. That's like us, right? Have we fixed the world? I mean, maybe there's some different views in this room about how long we've been around as humans. But wherever you start it, it's a mess. And it's always been a mess. And people have been trying to fix the mess. I can tie it on my own. I can tie it on my own. I'm telling you how to tie your shoes. I can tie it on my own. Have we fixed it? No. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that when Christ comes, the world, the world is hostile. The world's hostility should be no surprise. But nonetheless, even despite that, God has sent the rescuer, the great stone, the living stone, who becomes a cornerstone for a whole new world. And most of us in this room have experienced that reality in our own hearts. So what Peter's telling us about Jesus is remarkable. He is the promised stone of the Old Testament. That's the identity of Christ. But what he says about us is perhaps more remarkable. Because if you keep reading in verse 4, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, then verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You catch that? The same powerful, attention-grabbing language that Peter chose to describe Jesus, the great rescuer, he now applies to us. We are like living stones. The point isn't that we're some sort of bricks that God is physically using to build a building. The point is that we are like the living stone. That is, we are like Jesus. We are molded after the headstone. As living stones, we're actually part of Jesus' household, his family. We are in the household of God. We are members of it. We become part of that household as much as a brick is part of a building. We are part of that household. And as such, we are part of a holy priesthood. Our identity as believers is wrapped up in the identity of Christ. So if you heard what I said about Jesus being this great living stone, and you said, praise the Lord, that is such good news. I'm so grateful that that's who Jesus is. If you are a believer, you're now part of that. You are now like a living stone. 
Do we get the point? The great work that Jesus is doing has become our work. We get to join up with him. We get to be subsumed in his great rescue plan. Um, I'm, I've always been interested in politics. And when I was in university, I had my first foray into politics. At the time, there was a little-known presidential candidate that I heard speak a few times, and I became convinced this was the man who was going to lead the, uh, the charge to reclaim the moral decay of America. Perhaps a bit naive. He was a little-known candidate, but I had signed up on his website for whatever, and I got this message that it was going to be a group of people meeting in Chicago to discuss how to help this candidate win. So I showed up at the meeting, and there was just a small number of us. So here's this guy who I feel like, this is the answer. This is the hope. And then as we're interacting and discussing, it becomes clear all of us are going to have to be part of the campaign team for our state. So I remember going to the library and getting out a precinct map and printing it up in big and laminating it and starting to find, trying to find somebody in each precinct to be able to, you know, head up the campaign in that area. I was so excited as a young man to be able to be a part of this greater vision. Now, this is the sermon about my flops, so that flopped as well. There was a new campaign team appointed, but the point is to say, like, this candidate, how much more what Jesus did in taking on sin and rising from the dead and starting a whole new eternal kingdom that is open to all. And that's when it says we're like living stones. It's saying, look at the good thing God is doing in Christ. And now I get to be part of that campaign team. I get to, not just a campaign team. I get to be part of that family. That's what that family is about. That's what God is about doing in Christ. And I get to be part of that household. I'm talking about our identity, but you can see where I'm going to that third point. Paul, Peter inter, is interweaving all this. Our purpose, right? I'm getting there. But we are like living stones. But he doesn't, Peter doesn't want us to miss the point. Remember, Jesus was chosen and precious. But Peter goes on to call us chosen and precious. Now, if you're reading the passage carefully, you might have noticed the word chosen in verse 9. And it is the same word in the Greek. You are a chosen race. Jesus, the living stone, was chosen by God the Father. We are chosen. But the word precious is also there too, though it's harder to see in English. Because in verse 7, where it's mentioned, it translates it as honor. So the honor is for you who believe. But it's actually the same root word for precious. It just wouldn't read very naturally to say, so the preciousness is for you who believe. So it translated honor, and also I think because the word shame is right before it. But it's that same word. That preciousness that Jesus said, that preciousness is for us who believe. We are like living stones. We are chosen, and His preciousness is for us. You see, 
that becomes our identity. We become part of that household, that family, and, as, and it's that part, we're part of the household that is restoring all things. We are God's new people in Christ. That's what verse 9 spells out, right? Gentile pagans, now a chosen race. Small town civilians, now a royal priesthood. Pitiful sinners, now a holy nation. Greedy materialists, now God's own possession. And only because of Jesus. Our new identity of being moved from darkness to light is because of Jesus. His standing with God, because of what He did on the cross, becomes our standing with God. That is our identity. And because His identity becomes our identity, then His purposes become our purposes. So we've seen Jesus' identity, the great stone whose kingdom will right all that's foul and blighted in this world of ours. And we see our identity rescued by Him to be part of His household, right? We see these two identities, living stone like living stones. And so, the purposes of Jesus' household become the purposes of our household because we are part of Jesus' home. It makes me think, when I was, when I was considering these truths, I thought of, a guy like John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, who, as a man in his 20s, was just wrestling in his own soul. He had a religious orientation. He knew something about God. But he also felt the draw of his flesh, and he'd try and defeat the, the flesh, the sinful desires in him, and he just couldn't. And then he'd try some new religious system, and he couldn't. He was just torn up inside. And, and you read his writing from that time, he's just like, he's a mess. This guy's all over. I think he's going about his work, you know, tinkering and repairing metal things and stuff like that. But then he heard a group of women talking about Christ and the gospel. He actually just overheard it. He started making his way to that same spot on a regular basis so he could hear him talk. Finally, he got up the courage to ask him, and they shared with him the gospel, and they pointed him to their pastor who shared with him the gospel. Who are the John Bunyans? Maybe even some of you are here, but in our community who are, who are wrestling, they have some sense of God, but they don't know what to do with that. Don't you want to do what God, be a part of God's rescue plan for them? I think of somebody still living today, J.I. Packer, a famous theologian of our day. When he was a young man in university, he was depressed and he was suicidal. He was trying to make sense of this very complex world and he has the kind of brain that he was wrestling with all that at a deep level, a heart level, and a complex level. And he was so overwhelmed by trying to make sense of this complex world and all that there is. He was driven to depression, and he says, even suicidal. But then someone came to him and explained the truths of the Bible in a way that rooted it in the gospel of Christ. 
And he was transformed. He found that life. Or more personal to me, I remember when Susan walked into our 20s ministry. She wasn't in her 20s yet. She was still a teenager. But because she was a single mom, a child born out of wedlock, she didn't feel like she fit in in the youth group. So she came to our 20s ministry. And there was an organization set up by Christians that had given her a place to live and had invited into her life these Christian parents who could kind of mentor her. And they went to our church and so they loved her and they helped her with a little baby. And then they brought her to their church and they brought her to our 20s ministry. And then I got to see particularly the women in our group, just come around her and help her out. Some of the men be kind of fatherly figures to her little daughter as she grew up. And her life has been totally transformed by the gospel. Now, if you hear those stories and the Holy Spirit's in you, you say, yes, that is what Jesus does. And that's what I want to be a part of I want to participate in that. I want to be the one who's helping that single mom, that, that, that teenager who's wrestling, that, that young man who's grappling with his own sinfulness, whatever it is, trying to make sense. I want to be the one who steps in and helps them. Right? Doesn't your heart beat like that? If it doesn't, go home and look in the mirror and slap yourself a few times. No, don't really do that. But do something, because this is, I mean, this is the pulse, right? If you're a believer here, you go, that's what I want to be about. We as a church have wept together over the last two Sundays as we've heard the stories of people in our own midst who have found life and hope in the gospel. Our hearts ache with joy that because of what Christ has done for them, they've been able to experience all that this new living stone brings, reshaping desires and purposes. You see, Christ changes our identity, and our new identity changes our purpose. Look, look at how he explains our new purpose First, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, why does he make us a spiritual house? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It might not be super obvious what he's talking about yet, so let's look at his next purpose statement there in verse 9. Why has he called us out of darkness? Again, the end of verse 9 that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, acceptable sacrifices through Christ. And then, proclaim His excellencies. And then there's another one, verse 12. Why are we supposed to live a certain way? End of verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. It's really saying the same thing three different ways. 
The repetition makes the point clear. Our purpose on earth is to proclaim the excellencies of God by offering the spiritual sacrifice of our holy living. Now, that means more than simply gathering together once a week and singing a song about Jesus. It means all of life, right? It means worship that happens in the grit and grime of life. Our Sunday worship service is simply an outgrowth of that. And it's this kind of grit and grime worship that's in all of life that allows us and gives us a platform to the unbelieving world around us. Some of them, some of them will be able to see the difference between darkness and light. And they'll say there is something different about this person. And God will draw them to himself through our distinct lives. We'll be able to participate in the rescue Jesus brings. And that's our purpose as living stones or as like living stones. Now, some of you hear this and you say, yeah, yeah I, I was excited about those things. I'm glad our church is doing those things, but it's just not where I'm at. I, I haven't caught up to that yet. That's not where my heart is. Maybe others of you hear this and you're like, yes, that is what I want to be about, but you know how it works. You're going to go home, and the zeal that you feel right now is just going to kind of fade away, and it's going to be gone. Others of you are, are chomping the bit to be part of Jesus' rescue plan, to help in the rescue, but, but you're like, I don't know how to do it. How do I meet these J.I. Packers and these John Bunyans and these Susans? I think verses 2 and 3 help us a lot with this. Because the way, the way we, what we need to be doing is we need to be growing. Growing until we meet our ultimate salvation when Christ returns. Keep growing. And the way we grow is by drinking pure spiritual milk. Now, the word translated spiritual can also mean of the word. So the old authorized translation called it the milk of the word. But regardless, everyone acknowledges that the reference is clearly to God's word. And unlike in Paul, where milk just symbolizes kind of basic teaching of the faith, Peter is using it here to represent the whole counsel of God's word. Have you ever tried to pacify a hungry baby? Sometimes only mom can pacify the hungry little baby, but dad's got the baby. Believe me, you can try everything you want. You can bounce, you can rock, you can bring to the window, run the hand underwater, everything you try. Give it to grandma. Grandma can't even get him to stop, so you go, phew, I'm not a failure. Because they want one thing. They want to eat. They got a single minded focus. And Peter's saying, We need to learn from the baby. Don't get distracted by all the stuff. Don't let the bouncing and the padding distract you from what you really need. Crave the spiritual milk and don't stop till you get it. Be like the baby. And he lays out the cause and effect that by it you may grow. Do you see that in verse 2? Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into the salvation that we'll ultimately receive when Christ comes back. The cause is God's word and the effect is growth. So if you want to be growing, if you hear those things and say, yeah, at some level the Holy Spirit in me is saying, yes, yes, I want that, but I don't know how to get there. I want to be that light to the world. I want to be proclaiming His excellencies. I want people to look at my life and say, you're light, and I've seen darkness, and I'm drawn to that. But you're like, how do I get there? 
Peter's saying, here's what you got to do. You got to feast on the spiritual milk because that's how it's, you're going to grow. So you're struggling. I'm not there. And I asked you, when was the last time that you actually opened a passage of Scripture with a Christian friend and had a meaningful discussion about it and talked about its implications for your life? I always want those things, but my zeal just flags. I know that's good, but I'm just not there. It's not how I've ever done things. It's kind of encroaches on my comfortable life and I don't know how to break out of that rut. Well, are you, are you opening the Bible and actually looking at it? Well, that won't help. Well, have you tried it? You go to the doctor because you've got a cough and a sore throat and they give you a prescription. Don't show up three weeks later with the same symptoms and say you haven't taken the medicine. Try it. And really bringing it full circle to our discipleship plan. All our discipleship plan is trying to do is get us into conversation with each other where we're prayerfully and lovingly speaking truth to one another, where we're we're discussing the Bible in meaningful ways with one another. It can look all sorts of different ways, but we as elders have kind of established three pathways that we're going to be promoting for you to be digging into God's Word and praying with others so that, so that we will grow and be better at proclaiming His excellencies to a world so in need. Now, actually, this kind of stuff is already happening in all sorts of pockets of our church. I look out and I see many of you who are already doing this kind of thing. But as the elders of church, we want to offer our aid and support in helping you develop these kinds of relationships. Now, after a lot of prayer and discussion and hearing feedback from many of you, we've concluded that some of the specifics of the plan I laid out in January were too elaborate and cumbersome. We felt like some of the details of the plan lend themselves more to a focus on programs and less to a focus on people. We felt like it might skew things towards duty. You feel really bad if I'm not doing that. And not enough towards heart. So we've made changes. At this point, we're not launching an all-ages discipleship hour at 9 o'clock. We'll continue to offer hearty Bible teaching at the 9 o'clock hour and perhaps at times run a second class concurrent with it. Instead, we're focusing on one thing. Creating opportunities for each of us to prayerfully and lovingly speak God's word to one another. Because that's how we'll grow. And so that's what we want to cultivate. So you, you might have heard what I said, okay, prayerfully speaking God's word to one another, but like, I, I, it's kind of foreign for me to grasp. I, I feel up here a little bit like trying to descri- describe color to somebody who's blind and always been blind. What I'm describing is something hard to describe if you've never experienced it, but if you've experienced it, it's actually quite easy to describe. I'm not talking about trying to create relationships where you can thump people with the Bible in sort of a condescending know-it-all sort of way and show off your Bible knowledge, quoting verses at other people in judgment because you're so holy. Nor am I talking about having a pat Christian cliche that just kind of kills conversation. What I'm talking about is definitely one of those things that's better caught than taught. 
So instead of describing what we're after and telling you, do it, do it, you got to do it, we just want to invite you in as elders to experience it. So we're doing this by promoting three common, what we're calling pathways, three common pathways for people to experience this kind of iron-on-iron, speaking truth in love relationships. I'm not going to spell them out right now. One's one-to-one Bible reading. One's called core prayer groups. Another one's called uh, growth groups. We'll be getting you more information about what those look like later. But we as the elders are actually going to take the initiative in piloting these types of things. We're just going to start some on our own. There's already some going on in our church that you might not know about, or maybe you do know about them. We're going to pilot some more. And since they're already going on, we're going to tap certain people who are doing a good job of that and encourage them to keep doing it. And hopefully what we'll see is that as people experience it, they say, yes, that's good. And they want to be involved and grow. And we'll trust God to bring the growth. We're confident that as people experience these kind of rich, word-saturated relationships, they'll want more. And so it'll continue to grow and grow within the church. Not because the elders are pushing it or because we're legislating it, but it's just arising out of our hearts, delighting to be a part of what He's doing in this world. And as God's Word grows us, we'll become more effective and fruitful witnesses of Him to the world around us. So will you continue to pray to that end and will you join me in prayer right now? Father, thank you that the living stone has come and oh, the privilege of being able to be like living stones chosen and precious with him, part of his household, doing his good work. Make that increasingly the case in our church. In Christ's name, amen.